Psalm chapter 5, as you have already sung a few verses of that. We're going to begin by reading this, and as I shared, I'm going to try to, uh, there's a real challenge, I guess, I discovered last week with the marathon sermon, to maybe not be able to get through a psalm a week. That was my aspiration, um, and I'm not going to be able to do that when I get by. It's how I get to Psalm 9 for sure, it's going to be a struggle after that, uh, even some of the, maybe Psalm 7. Uh, we might have to get a couple of weeks, but um, I'm still driving toward that, including this Lord's Day, so I might have to talk a little faster. But we want to read through Psalm 5. It would, it would be um, problematic to preach through that and think that my words were better than what God's Word is. So let's read that together this morning. It says to, and I'm going to read out of the New King James this week. It says, To the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. We come into this psalm and we recognize it, hopefully from last week, that this is the pairing to the previous psalm. The previous psalm calls us to our bed. It is the evening psalm as we prepare to lie down to, to deal with the circumstances of the day and to cast those things onto the Lord and to have that quiet sleep of peaceful uh, trust in the Lord. And we saw that last week. This is its companion so as you go to bed in Psalm 4, you are awoken in Psalm 5. And what will be your attitude and your perspective on the day? Not just one particular day, although that is in view here, especially in the middle of the chapter, uh, is the Lord's Day. Uh, for him, it was the day of sacrifice, and that is not just a Sabbath, but other opportunities as well. But he is preparing to enter into the Lord's house, and uh, but certainly it is entailing of every day that we want to wake up in the morning with our minds stayed on Jesus Christ and on what uh, he has called us to do that day, to serve him, and in what attitude, both of mind and of spirit, we should have in that work. And so we go to bed in prayerful attitude, uh, trusting in the Lord, recognizing that uh, where there is sin and needs to be confessed of and turned from, and again, that there is, should not be a falseness about this. The word falsehood is in both of these chapters, that this should not characterize. In other words, our use of Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, though it might become very regular, could easily become false. If we use it without a genuineness in our heart of understanding the nature of what it calls us to, it calls us to not have a contrived peace as we go to bed, but a genuine one because we have the peace of God that pass understanding for we have confessed and, and set things right with God and we are trusting in the Lord and not in ourselves or in other men or in other gods. In the morning we will awake and we could easily quote off a psalm, a verse of some fashion like this in a very ritualistic manner and be false in that. And he calls us to something much greater than that, to be genuine in letting it uh, set our attitude for the day, 
set our course for the day, what is our expectation, and enlist God's help for the day. And, of course, we're not going to enlist God's help to do what he hates. That would be foolishness, right? I'm not going to ask for your help to do something you don't want me to do. And so we are immediately confronted with that. In the title, the attribution here, which is verse 1 in the, in the Septuagint, but here it is the prior to verse 1. Again, we have the same designation we saw last week, that instead of to the chief musician, we have for the end, and the end being not a time, but a person, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus Christ, uh, the, that one. And instead of with flutes, and, and probably most of your Bibles have a, a notation there that flutes, we really don't know what it means. They give you the Hebrew word out of the Masoretic text, um, but the Greeks knew what it meant uh, out of the Paleo-Hebrew. And that designation, translated into English, that's a lot of work there, um, is concerning the inheritance. We're going to talk about that, especially when we get into the middle portion of this, of this chapter. Concerning the inheritance, a psalm of David. When we, well, let, let's go ahead and jump into this, um, since we introduced it. Concerning the inheritance, you might say, well, in our mind, we think of inheritance, we might think of something in the physical realm, we might think as believers in something that is coming in the future, um, but that is not how David would have used this term. The concept of concerning our inheritance wasn't just the land that we um, that, that Israel enjoyed. It wasn't just the promised land, but it was something much more spectacular than that. And you reference that a little bit, and although uh, your, the adult Sunday school teacher, Mr. Roberts, went a little bit different direction, uh, focusing in Deuteronomy 12, he actually references this inheritance that, that Moses tells him, you're going to come into your inheritance. And what is the nature of that inheritance? The inheritance there is is set in the fact that God will make his home, his dwelling, in a particular place. No more will you be wandering around and, and just serving the Lord here and there and everywhere. But rather, you're going to serve the Lord in one location. He is going to dwell. There's going to be a place that he will be permanently uh, found. And that that was part of that inheritance. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12. I know you spent time in there in Sunday school, but many of you weren't there. And so let's go to Deuteronomy 12. Uh, these things happen, and that's kind of nice. Um, when they correlate, when Sunday school and church correlate so closely, um, it is providential. Let's use that word. Hand of the Lord is good. And so we... Um, come to this instruction about where to worship. The prescribed place of worship is the title to this chapter. We jump down to verse 8, and uh, we say, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifice, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you bow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is with you, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you, Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. And so we find this concept that once you enter into the inheritance, into the promised land, one of the things that's going to be established there is that there's going to be a specific place. The Lord says, my name will abide there. And we know that to be that place in Jerusalem that is uh, associated with so strongly with their inheritance, that this is the mount of the Lord, that this is the place that you will come and bring your sacrifices. The temple will be built there. Um, and David certainly over the course of his, his uh, kingship wanted to get the tabernacle to that location. Um, and that was interrupted for a couple of reasons, but eventually does get there. 
And of course, his son Solomon is commissioned with the job of building the uh, temple that was designed by his father under the Spirit's direction. All of this is tied into the concept of the inheritance. You see this in this chapter in Deuteronomy 12, how we keep talking about the inheritance. So when we talk about this psalm regarding the inheritance, um, and we say, well, what does that have to do? I don't really see that in the psalm. You do when you get to the middle of the psalm, because he's really talking about how am I going to enter into and approach God in worship at his holy place? That of all the places in Israel you could call the promised land, it is culminated in that one place. And even when that one place is destroyed, we have men of God uh, directing their attention to it. We find when we get in the book of Daniel, what does he do? He wants to face Jerusalem as he prays, and that's out of Psalm chapter 5 that we have that instruction. That I'm going to go to that place, and I'm going to face that place in my worship. And we have uh, really gotten away from this um, because the church is not tied to a location uh, because we have a very different concept of residence. We're going to talk about that also in this chapter if I can get to it. And that is the concept that the Lord resides within us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and therefore we become the temples of the Holy Spirit which are in us and we are not our own. We are bought the price. Therefore you glorify God in your bodies. And so this concept is going to be brought in to this idea of how are we worshiping? What is the attitude that we are getting up in the morning? And are we getting up in the morning? And are we facing each day and then one particular day as days of worship? And how can we do that? And so we wake up in the morning and, and, and we are confronted with a request of God. And that is to listen. Lord, I'm going to be praying not just today, but I, or not just right now, but I'm going to be praying throughout this day, and the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, that we have this conception that when we get up, if we commit our day to the Lord, that we begin and recognize that we have a relationship with Him throughout the day. It begins by inviting Him into our lives in a relational manner and inviting ourselves into His audience. And so the invitation, the, the request... The prayer is give ear to my words, to consider what I am sharing, my counsel, not not really my counsel, um, but uh, my desire to have my requests and, and my life put at your feet. And thus, this concept of our, our, uh, meditation or, or just the outpouring of my life. I'm just giving you my life. Please listen throughout my day as I give to you my life, this day dedicated to you. And all that we would do that each day, and certainly he has a particular day in mind here, but each day that we're going to get up in the morning, he says, give heed to the voice of my cry and that, that, that uh, pouring out of my life and that I'm going to uh, desire to please you throughout this day, and I'm going to rehearse before you what I know doesn't please you. He's going to give double the positive and the negative. And how important is that? Critically important. Because most of your life, as you wake up in the morning, while you may have an opportunity for this, for this sweet fellowship with God, uh, in your waking hours, in the privacy of your home, uh, once you enter into the world, you're going to be confronted with all their evil. It may, be, it may be even sooner than that, depending upon what you have waking you up and invading the privacy of your home, uh, whether that you allow a radio station or an internet site to do that, and now they're directing your thoughts, uh, and you are immediately confronted with the things of this world. And the, and the author of this psalm understands that. He was confronted with those things as well. Don't think it's just media that does that that throughout the day we're going to be confronted with temptation, we're going to be confronted with the philosophies of this world, we're going to be confronted with lies, we're going to be confronted with evil. And so he's giving up this cry, he's, 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 he's inviting or asking God to listen to him, not just on this one occasion, not just at this one moment, but throughout this day, and we find that 
not only does he call him Lord in verse 1, but my King and my God in verse 2. I am here to serve you. When you call him Lord, King, God, (laughs) you are communicating that you are his servant, that you are committing this day, and again, I think every day, um, but particularly that day of worship, that I'm going to make sure that I'm going to dedicate that day of sacrifice to the Lord uh, in its totality. Again, from sunset to sunset. And here in the midst of that, in the morning hours, I'm going to rise and I'm going to set my attitude correctly. I'm going to remember, He is my Lord today. He is my King today. He requires and deserves my loyalty and my service. He is my God today. He desires and deserves my worship. And thus, to, it is to Him I'll pray. That prayer is not a formal religious activity, but rather that prayer is a relational attitude that says, I trust in you for everything. It is the, is the extension of what we saw in the last psalm, which is, I will trust in the Lord. And, and again, that we'll dwell safely there. And so, I'm going to pray to you. I'm not going to pray to other gods. I'm not going to make my requests. I'm not going to make my expectations of the things of this world, of the people of this world. I'm not going to rely upon them. I'm going to rely upon you. You are my king. You are my God. You are my Lord. You I will serve. You are worshiped. You I will depend upon. If I have a need, I will pour it out to you. To you, I will pray. Well, when will you pray? Well, verse 3 directs us to that, that it begins in the morning. And he makes a promise to God. He makes a declaration saying that not just this morning, but every morning, my voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord. And again... (laughs) Uh, it needs to be directed to you, and we have an attitude looking up. But I want you to notice the expectation. The expectation isn't um, you're going to think about God in the morning. The statement is, God, you're going to hear my voice in the morning. And we believe certainly that God has access and knows us and knows our inner workings and the very thoughts, and especially if we have invited the Holy Spirit to take residence in us, that He knows our thoughts. In fact, He has to know those in order to interpret and to translate, if you will, our prayers to God. We have that kind of intimacy with God. But when it comes to worship, when it comes to the nature of what this prayer entails, um, it calls upon us to do more than just well, I thought about God a little bit this morning, but to actually open our mouths and audibleize our worship, our prayers, our declaration that you are my God and my King, and today I will serve you. Today I will walk in your truth. Today I will worship you. We don't just consider that a little bit in our mind, but we will hear, and the Lord desires to hear that. James communicates that. That here's the tongue and either you can bless with it or you can curse with it. Well, what is coming out of your mouth, it it reveals what's going on in your heart. But if it's not ever coming out of your mouth, then what's going on in your heart? That it never wants to come out. Is there a secrecy about your faith or is there a weakness in it? that doesn't want to make it audible, does not want to have God hear you declare that He is your King, He is your God, He is your Lord, He you will trust in, He will you would depend upon, He is the one you will worship. Oh, that we would have God hear our voice in the mornings, whether in song, uh, in conversation, in prayer, that we direct it not to one another, not to ourselves, but to Him. 
that morning by morning, if I want to dedicate this time to my Lord, whatever my activities of the day, and have it protected and guarded from being uh, drawn into temptation, from being drawn into evil, from being uh, misdirected away from your truth, uh, Lord, I want to lift up my voice. Your, my voice you will hear in the morning. In the morning I'll direct it to you and I will look up. And so the expression of my heart should be verbalized. And it should be in our attitude, in, in, our, in our physical being. And certainly the voice is the physical part of that which is uh, important in our mind. Um, but then also it says, I'll look up. Most Christians, when they pray, are looking down. I'm not sure why all the time, but for some reason we bow our heads <laughs> um, and get on our knees, and, and that we prostrate ourselves with the concept of humility. Uh, but the psalmist, in his prayer time, has a very different perspective. And when you look at some of the old artwork, uh, from even from pre-medieval period and that, you will see that those will look up in their praying and they'll direct their prayers to God and they will look up. Is it okay to look up while you're praying? Um, yes. It's not as effective in a building, I don't think. Not much up here. Maybe we should paint things up there to remind you of God. And by the way, if you're an Eastern Orthodox church, their entire building is covered by such paintings. Ceiling, walls, floor, everything is covered with such images to help you do that. Um, but the whole attitude is that my, my, when I get up in the morning, I am going to direct my physical attention, my, my posture is directed towards God, that I know who I'm living for, that I know who He is, and what he means to me, he will hear my voice. I will articulate before him that he has my loyalty. I will pledge it to him morning by morning. And that is what is being communicated in this prayer. And in the psalm, the, the, the little chorus that you have sung of these first three voices, my voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord. I will direct it to you and I will look up. This is a promise that this psalmist is making to God. We don't often think of prayers that. We usually think of prayers us going to God asking for stuff or praising Him. We don't think about declaring to Him the intention of our heart and the desire of our heart. And, and we want to do this. I want to lift up my voice. You will hear my voice in the morning. But beware, you make those kind of statements to God, He'll hold you to it. Won't He? Well, let's move on because we have a lot to do and I only have a few minutes to go. The psalm here is divided up into five sections. We just covered the first section of five. Um, it is going to be a contrasting, going back and forth from the psalmist to the consider the alternative, the contrast, and those that are wicked and then coming back to the psalmist in verses 7 and 8, going back to consider the wicked in 9 and 10, and back to the righteous in verse 11 and 12. And so we're going to be drawn back and forth in these five sections across these 12 uh, verses. And so we come into this first section that is rehearsing uh, what it means to uh, not be one through three. If, we are, if God is not your Lord, not your King, not your, not your God, if you are not loyal to Him and going to pledge your loyalty to Him, if you're not going to serve Him, if you're not going to worship Him, if you're not going to trust in Him, if you're not going to pray to Him and let Him direct your path, here's the alternative. The alternative is that you are going to follow pleasure. It says you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness because you're going to be pleasured by wickedness. When God takes no pleasure in wickedness, you're going to be drawn into it. God will not dwell or sojourn or travel along with you if you choose wickedness. We cannot 
go along our day and be enticed by the world and be enthralled by the world and pursue the world and think somehow God is walking that path with us. He is not. He will not. You are on your own at that point, or worse, as we're going to see when we get to the second set regarding this, which is the fourth set in this chapter. Don't anticipate and don't invite God along the way if you don't have any intention of serving Him, worshiping Him, praying to Him, and and letting Him direct you. He won't go that path with you. He will not sojourn with you. I think the word in the margin is that He will not dwell. It's really He will not travel with you. Because God has no pleasure in it, He has no pleasure in evil. If you go that way, he will not. For no evil can travel with him. He takes no pleasure in it. So if we do, we find ourselves in opposition to him. And so we are called upon to walk uprightly day by day. The alternative is, is that God has no pleasure in us. God will not sojourn with us if we are taking pleasure in wickedness, if we are making our way in the way of unrighteousness, God won't travel there with you, for He doesn't take that path. He will have no pleasure in you, for all your pleasures are in the world. Why would He be pleased with that? And then we come into yet more attitudinal problems. It says, The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. And again, we have this pridefulness described. And of course, we go to Paul's statement to Timothy, in the last days, what will be the evidence of his coming? Well, there will be perilous times. Men will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud. Those are the top three. That we do not pray the, the pharisaical prayer. Lord, I'm glad you may be so good and not like these other people. No, we humble ourselves before him. We recognize that he is the Lord. He is righteous. We recognize he is the king. I am his servant. We recognize he is God. I am his creature. So there should not be boastfulness. And we have, if that attitude stands in our hearts, we have no access to God. It says you have no standing or you do not shall not stand in his sight. You have no presence before God. And that is a horrible condition to be in all day long. But the boastful have no access. And in fact, then we come to the last half of verse 5 and we're startled a little bit and we're pretty sure this is completely politically incorrect. Uh, It is religiously incorrect. Now there's RC to to say this, um, you hate all workers of iniquity. Now, what we really want this to say to be politically correct is he hates all iniquity that has worked, right? That's really what we wanted to say because we have been trained from a very young age, I even my generation, well, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. That's not what this verse says. God says he hates the workers of iniquity that get up in the morning and plan their day to do evil in his sight. And God says, I am opposed to you. I'm going to be against you. You're, my, you're reserved for my wrath. You are excluded from my benevolence, my love. Did Christ die for those people? Yes. Can you, can, which makes their evil worse, correct? When you do so much for somebody and then they betray you or they, they do wicked back, does that make their wickedness, is the wickedness the same? No, it's worse because you've done so much for them. And that is why rebellion by children against their parents and adulthood is so wicked. They have done so much for you and you maltreat them in this manner. You have made your wickedness worse. 
God says, I hate that. I hate the workers of iniquity that get up in their plan, their strategy, their ambition for the day, their labor for the day is to do evil. And God hates that desire, hates that one who makes that their job to do iniquity. It goes on, verse 6. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. And again, here's a term that's used in the prior chapter, used here again, that God cannot, he hates the liar, the lie. It is the abomination. This is one of those abominations, right? Seven things the Lord, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And one of those is a lying tongue. One of them is comparable, uh, who bears false witness, which is another lie. Two of the seven involve lying right off the bat. God abhors that. If I go out and my life is a lie out there and I can't speak the truth, I can't represent myself truthfully and honestly, then God hates that. That I do not excuse myself, but I just speak the truth. Even though it is sometimes self-condemning, are you willing to speak the truth? God says, I'm going to destroy the liar. The Bible says that we know where all liars' places are. The liar's place is in, the, in hell, in Hades. And again, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And that's really the person laying in wait to do violence. You've set traps to do violence against people. They say, Pastor, I'm not you know, hurting people. And in, oh, we, we lay traps, whether that's economic violence or relational violence instead of physical violence, even spiritual violence we do. We, can, we lay those traps, and God says, I hate those bloodthirsty people who set those traps, who set those plans, who devise those ways. And, and certainly it's deceitfulness there, but it's that deceitfulness of a trap that I'm going to lure you in, and then, bam, you're caught. God hates that. He abhors the man who does that. Please notice, the object of God's hatred is not just the action, but the man who's committed to that action. When you wake up in the morning, and your commitment is to an action of evil in any of this list and beyond that list, God hates you. Because you are planning this wickedness first thing in the morning. It's what you've gotten up to do. Oh boy, I get to get up and do horrible, nasty things. Because it describes the intent of a heart that has devised these things in his bed. It is exactly what we talk about of the one who can't sleep and now is devising evil all the night. And it's kind of laid into a Old saying we have the idle hands of the devil's workshop. It's the concept that, that I'm going to devise evil instead of being industrious with my time and energy and intentions. This is not unintentional sin that I am enticed into um, by a temptation. This is planned. I am planning to be deceivious. I'm planning to lie. I'm going to misrepresent myself to those people that I see. And we're all really good at it. And in fact, there are YouTube videos of how to do this, especially for the ladies. That I can present myself as being something I'm not. And now... We have it on social media, you know, you put all these filters in, right? So now it looks like you're this, got this perfect complexion and your eyes are over, I don't know, they got all these filters. And um, so you can deceive people into who you are and what you look like. If deception is our intention, if it's what we wake up in the morning looking forward to, I'm going to, you know, misrepresent myself to everybody around me which is the, pretty much the purpose of makeup and, and other things like that, 
is to is misrepresentation. I'm going to hide and cover my flaws, and uh, so that I have this appearance of perfection. And God abhors the liar, abhors those that wake up with a deception, wake up with arrogance, wake up with with the lie, with the with the plan, the trap. Wake up with iniquity in their hearts. God hates that. He will not walk the day with you. So the psalmist reminds us, not only of here's my commitment, I'm going to get up in the morning and God's going to hear my voice. I'm going to look up to Him and I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to pray and follow Him as my Lord, my God, my King. The alternative is a very dangerous path that the Lord will not take with you and do not expect. I mean, I have Christians complaining about, oh, God doesn't bless me. And I'm like, look at how you live. Why would he? He'll never walk that path with you. He'll do the opposite of blessing him. And that's what I would pray happens to you so that you can recognize that the, the foolishness of the path you're on. I don't want God to bless you. I don't bless my children when they do evil and walk wrongly. I correct them or I turn my face away from them. That's their choices. Receive correction or receive rejection. That's it. Because that path is the path of destruction. I will not walk it with you. Why do we expect God any different? And shame on the parents that walk the path and enable children, their adult children or children's children even, to walk those paths by paying the way. No. God says, I hate that. So I treat you in this manner, even though I've died for you. And again, we move to another contrast in verse 7. But as for me, (laughs) that's them. If you wake up in the morning and God hears your voice, you're crying out to him, and you're looking up to him, and you're giving him your day. You're saying, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do everything I can to demonstrate my loyalty to you as my king, my worship to you as my God, and my relationship with you as my Lord. I want to do everything today. And But here's what I'm going to do. What I am going to do, but as for me, this is the path they're going to take. Iniquity, wickedness, boastfulness, lying, bloodthirstiness, setting traps. Instead of that, Here's my plan for the day. Here we go. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. And that is that assignment with the inheritance. This is that central point that really the attribution section of this psalm points to this midpoint, just like it did in the last one where the central point there was the Holy One, the Righteous One. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. As for me, I'm going to come into your house. I'm going to seek out the Lord. in the traditions of Greek Orthodoxy, the pastor, the priest, the the parson, um, is to pray these two verses as he enters the church building every time the Lord's Day happens. As he ascends the steps or whatever and draws near the building, he is instructed to pray these two verses. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, not in my own righteousness, again, in the mercy of God. Not in a proudful way, in a way that recognizes that I'm here begging your forgiveness and, and walking in your righteousness and in the provision that you have made for me. In the multitude of your mercy, I come into your house. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. 
we hopefully understand the concept of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is a recognition that you are not dealing with someone that you can work into a corner and, and manipulate. If you wake up in the morning and he is your God, your King, your Lord, you will recognize this immediately when you enter in his house. That you come into a place of worship and that the fear of him, especially if we think about verses 4, 5, and 6, you have every reason to fear him, don't you? If your plan of your day is to do it your own interests, your pleasures, your iniquity, your misrepresentations, etc., etc., you should be afraid. And so, because we have the fear of the Lord in us, we recognize His standard is righteousness, we come and we worship on His terms. And that's really what this is about. This is about worshiping God not the way it feels good to us, but the way He has prescribed it. And this is very foreign to Western churches. And that's what was spoken of in Deuteronomy 12. Moses tells them, you know, when you get to the land and God says, this is the place I'm going to abide, you don't get to do whatever your heart thinks is right. You're going to have to do it the way God says to do it. And David's commitment here in this psalm is, out of the fear of you, I'm going to worship you the way you prescribe for me to worship you. Not the way I contrive to worship you. And I've heard it all. I'm a pastor, so I get to hear everybody's rationality for their empty worship. Oh, I can worship God in my jammies in bed in front of a TV. No, you can't! Period. It is in direct violation of multiple verses. but we want to do what is right in our own eyes. Because we don't have the fear of the Lord in us to say, I'm going to do it the way He prescribes for it to be done. And I'm not talking about uh, uh, engaging in, in an expansive liturgy that, that requires me to quote these two verses coming into the building every time I come into the building. But the attitude is here is that we're going to be led by the Lord in paths of righteousness. I'm going to do it God's way. And so the invitation, the request, the prayer, really, if you want, what is the one prayer request in this whole chapter? It is the very next verse, lead me, O Lord. So far we have a declaration, a promise. You know, I will... Um, You'll hear my voice in the morning. I'll call out to you. I'll pray to you. And I will look up to you. You are my God, my King. That's a declaration. That's not really a prayer. We, but, but, but certainly starts off, give ear to my words. It's going to be a prayer. I have a rehearsal of God's expectations in terms of what he will, that he will not participate with evil. So if I want God to walk with me this day, I can't be involved in that. And so now I'm going to make this commitment. And it says, and this is again another statement, another promise. I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. I will worship toward your holy temple. And then the one request we have in this prayer, one request. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. That's the only personal request. There's going to be a, a, a kind of requestful nature at the end of this for those that join him. And we're going to talk about the congregation then at the end of this chapter. Um, but that whole concept is, is now, I have set my attitude right. I am keeping my promises that I'm going to be loyal to you in my life. And now my request is, lead me. It is foolishness to sit there and ask God to lead you when you don't even recognize him as your king. You don't recognize him as your God. You don't recognize him as your Lord. You do not follow his way. You want him to follow your way. Well, you, you do what is right in your own eyes. And, and David says, no, I'm going to, the fear of you, I will worship you your way, your place, 
according to the inheritance you have given to us, but in your mercy. That is, I am deserving of your hatred, of your wrath, of your judgment, but I stand before you humbled and fearful of you, but acknowledging you are my God. You are my Lord. You are my King. I will not lift my hand against you. But I do ask one thing. Lead me. Because I want to do what is righteous. The world will entice you and expect you to do the unrighteous thing. They will invite you. They will make it difficult for you to do the righteous thing. They will make it costly for you to do the righteous thing. They will say you will have no relationship with us if you do the righteous thing. They will only love you if you do evil. That's the world you're going to face every day, and that's why every morning you need to get up, lift your voice up to the Lord, and say, lead me this day in your righteousness. Because there's no other influence of the world that will lead you there. How will he lead you into righteousness? Well, can he do that through his prophets? Yes, through his people. Yes, we're going to talk about the corporateness of this in verse 11 and 12. But this request is that I want to do it your way and that whole idea, make your way straight before my face. I don't want to look to the left. I don't want to look to the right. I want to look straight down this road of righteousness that God has for me. I want to live straight. I don't want to play, I don't want to play the game of going down crooked paths and, and taking detours and hoping maybe before the end of my life or before Jesus comes back, I might make it back. No, I want the entire path straight before me to be planned out, to be laid out by God so that I am not enticed in any direction. And I will follow that path. And God clears a path for you, and, and he does it very clearly in God's word with the principles and the commands and the, and the instructions that we have in God's word. Um, he has done that. Essentially, when it says, make your way straight before my face, is an invitation, remind me of your word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do I know that straight path is to know God's word? And God declares it to us. God has made His way plain in front of your face. Will you walk it this day? Your enemies want you to fall. They want you to join them in their sin. Let there be no mistaking. You wake up every day and you leave your house and you engage the enemy. Sometimes they're your closest relatives. They're your co-workers, your bosses. They are the principles of this world. They are the media that engulfs you. They are the technology around you. They, they are all these things. They are your enemies. And when he says this prayer to, because of my enemies, I need you to lead me in righteousness. I do not get my clues of what is ethical from the world because it will always fail. Always. So I don't go to the world and say, what should I eat? And, and the big thing, I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on and, and the result of things. They're trying to eliminate meat. Okay, so go back to Deuteronomy 12, 20. It's my new life verse. I'm going to be putting it on all the media I have. Deuteronomy, eat all the meat you want. Yes, God's word said that to Israel. When you get into your inheritance, eat all the meat you want. Um, I don't get my clues from them. I don't get my clues from the world. They are saying things exactly opposite because from the flood on, God says, all this will be, will be food for you. Um, I give you every beast that crawls on the earth as food for you. And the world wants to rebel against that. They are the enemies. We do not follow their directives. We do not follow their principles. We do not follow them. Will it be costly to do that? Yes, because you have to understand that if they are God's enemies and you are a follower and he is your king, they are your enemies. They do not want you to serve the living Lord. Or that we'd follow his straight path. We again have two verses going back to the contrast. 
very quickly. And we've already referenced most of these things. There's a couple of things we want to include here. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Um, and that's really the concept of, of uprightness. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. So that's what they say. We, as for me, I'm going to be going into the house of the Lord with the fear of the Lord. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to do it his way. I'm going to let him lead me. Um, but, uh, but, and this is in stark contrast to the world. And listen to the world. Listen to them. You can trust nothing that comes out of their mouth because their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. Death is what comes out of their tongue. They promise you joy and they only give misery. They flatter with their tongue. Oh, they stroke your ego and you think now they're your friend and they're looking out for your welfare. They're not. God hates a flattering tongue. When we see them doing that, we should be very suspicious. Why? Why do you think it necessary to flatter me, to speak things that just aren't true about me in these glowing terms? Well, I want to make sure that you have good self-esteem. Let me tell you what good self-esteem looks like. Good self-esteem is the one who considers themselves second and others first. To esteem oneself, or I'm sorry, to esteem others better than oneself. And so I don't need, the problem with my esteem is I have too much of it. If you want good self-esteem, you need to be debased. You need to be as Paul and say, I'm the chief of sinners, oh wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is proper self-esteem. To esteem yourselves in comparison not to other men or to some human standard, but to God. And that's why I seek his mercy. Because I know what I'm guilty of. And so they speak evil and <laughs> death and you should distrust what they say. Look at how God, the invitation, pronounce them guilty, O God, let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they rebelled against you. So while we invite God to make our paths straight, the recognition is confound theirs. Come into their condition and confound them. Why? Because what they are espousing is death. And while I might be able to avoid it, there are others that will be drawn in and destroyed by the evil that comes from their tongue, their teaching, their principles, their philosophies. Because they are fundamentally rebellious against the king. Are you ready to join a rebellion against the king of kings and lord of lords? Because that's what the world is that you face every day. And so the psalmist sets this up, and now he begins by introducing the evil there, that we have the individual there in verse 4, 5, and 6, uh, the boastful ones, one, and now we have them, and now we the evil counsel of the multitudes. We now come to verse 11 and 12. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. What a distinction. Not a contrived joy that says, oh, I have to be happy because I'm going to church, but a genuine rejoicing because of who I am trusting in. That the concept that I can get up and know what is right and wrong, that I can know who is on whose side, that I can know the truth that makes us free, that I can know my purpose, which is to glorify my God, 
that I can be directed in my path and it is straight and cleared and level. That should bring joy to your heart. There's no speculation here. There is no um, contrivances here. This is true joy. Rejoice because we trust in God. We should be shouting for joy again, verbalizing our worship because you um, defend them is a term that used here in the Masoretic. Um, this is the one Septuagint word I prefer, and that is to dwell with them. It is contrasted to what we saw where God will not sojourn or dwell with the wicked one, but he will sojourn and dwell with those who trust in him. And that should help us to be joyful. Let those who love your name be joyful. You get the picture of the contrast? Here they are flattering and lying and deceiving each other themselves and maybe sometimes you, but certainly each other. And, and boy, is there anything more deceptive than our world today that, that wants to paint the pictures in, in public arena that they're having these wonderful lives when in fact they're completely miserable. And God sort of says, you of all people should have joyfulness and, and for multitudes of reasons. And so that joy should be evident in us for the Lord dwells with us. We put our trust in Him. And so if we love His name, that character, that name really talks about the character of that person, not just his identity. But if we love the character of God and we want to walk in it, in his mercy and his grace and his love, but in his righteousness and his justice and his truth as well, we should be joyful that you know the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he counts you as his child. How can you not face your day with joy? And so the request is that Let's all, Lord, help us all to be joyful. For your hand that your, you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. His hand of blessing is being offered. His favor, it says, will surround him as with a shield. That as we go through this day, I want God's blessing, but it is prerequisited by righteousness. And I even have help with that because it's his mercy that enables me to live righteous. It's his word that has revealed to me the straight path and, and his presence is willing to lead me along that path to empower me, if you will, down that path. And so I have joy in that. And now with his help and righteousness, I can receive his blessing. And will that mean there's no opposition as I'm walking down this nice, wonderful, leveled, smooth no rocks in the way, straight path that I can see straight down for many, many miles, even the balance of my days, to say I can walk that the rest of my life and be happy. Does that mean I have no enemies? Oh no, you're going to need protection. <laughs> he says the Lord is going to be my shield. You wake up in the morning with this psalm on your lips, in your heart, and filling your mind, and as a directive of the intentions of your life that day, then that's the expectation you should have. There is blessing, there is favor, and there is protection. We all want verse 12. We could all even claim we, we want verse 11. We want joy. 11 and 12 are carefully linked. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Of getting up in the morning and pledging your allegiance. Not to a flag, not to a nation. Pledging your allegiance to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To God Almighty. And walking throughout that day in a straight path, in righteousness, then there will be joy, knowing He's going to direct you. You know the, the Lord. You'll have enemies. You'll have opposition, of course. The Lord will defend you. If not in this life, He'll defend you at the day when they will face His judgment while you will enter into His rest, into that inheritance that waits for us. Pray. Lord God, would you thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for the privilege 
of knowing you and having your word before us, the access that you give us. Lord, we confess before you that you have seldom heard our voice in the morning crying out to you, to commit our way to you, to invite you into our life, to walk your straight paths. For this we ask your forgiveness. And pray that we might learn the lesson of the contrast here between those who will walk in truth and those that will spout lies, those that will seek out righteousness, those that will just devise evil, those that will walk in fear of you and those that will walk in rebellion to you. Lord, help us to recognize that these are the only two paths we will encounter, not only this day, but each day. Help us, Lord, to remember this song as we face not only this day, but each day. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.